takes a lot um, in, in terms of rebuilding uh, from a war. Um, there is the whole humanitarian um, aspect associated with, with having to, you know, um, live everything that you've built all your life and having to go and find a new place and start life all over again. So there is um, there's that aspect, I think, that's going to be very difficult for, for a lot of migrants. Like the day after we met, the the Russian patriarch came out and basically said the the war in Ukraine was because of gay pride. Um, there you go. And it, it, it goes. It, it 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 wasn't. He used gay pride, the pride parade, as a a, a a metaphor for Western influence. But it's basically the. And this is a thing in in the Balkans as well. Um, Non-Russian thing, but it's still the same trend. China is kind of just slowly raising a middle finger <laughs> to the United States. Um, I don't think that they care very much about um, whether or not... Uh, no, I, I don't think they, they would lament uh, the United States' continuing uh, fall um, if it you know, ends up suffering severely. Is China maybe using this one as a, like, I don't want to say scapegoat, but like as a test. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, okay, let me use it. How can I... Because technically it's in my advantage to see how ethical maybe the West are, what are like the nuclear, which weapon they have, what they have, how like powerful their armies are, and can, if like, if and when we decide to, to show up against them. I mean, we know hypothetically that Russia has always been willing to participate in the international capital market, which they're now being pushed off from, and that's all just an effort to destabilize the internal Russian war effort. In my opinion, Russia was like ready for something after 2014, especially when it was hit by sanctions again. So there are other means of ways that we don't know what's going on. There is no law right now in Russia that, that basically states you have to give, a, give away your phone so the police will go through your correspondence. I mean, I've seen that happening. It, but, it's, it, but people are so scared. I'm Leopoldine Genolimo, uh, again joined with my uh, think tank, thinkers, friends, and concerned global citizens. Um, we just want to uh, think through uh, just a continuation of uh, our own observations to the conflict that is going on, uh, Russia, Ukraine. We have Anastasia, Tyler, Ruyer, Yasmin. And we do have Ruddy uh, in person, and we have Elizabeth online. Um, we've had um, a voice from Professor Patricia, who is teaching eco- uh, economic development, and she just issued uh, her opinion. But first, I'd like to go with Anastasia uh, to just tell us um, what is new today. And I remember you said we would start with something of good news, sort of. Sort of, yes. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Anastasia. I'm Russian-Ukrainian-American who served in Peace Corps in Ukraine, who has familial ties and friendly ties with Ukraine and Russia as well. Um, Before I move to good news, sort of, I I need to correct myself. I stand corrected on my statement two weeks ago where I said that um, due to the new law that Putin signed uh, to avoid, quote unquote, fake news of any media that goes against the narrative of the Department of Defense in Russia, um, one of their major opposition papers 
closed. They did not close. They're still operating, but they are operating under the new censorship laws. So they still report from Ukraine and from Russia, um, reporting on the protests, reporting on the inflation, but they don't mention the word war. And they just basically, they're brackets, literally brackets or blurred out images that they still publish hoping that the readers would basically guess what they try to state to um, convey. So um, they're still out there. So, I mean, I don't know for how long, but they're still they're still doing their job. Um, good news, <laughs> in a way, for me, is not the fact that the war is still going on. That's, that's very depressing. And the damage, of course, is still... Uh, very, very uh, heavy on, on, on human lives and on infrastructure. It just, Ukraine just being pounded. But the Ukrainian people and their spirit in particular is just soaring. And I'm just so, um, I'm relieved, I'm inspired. I'm, 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 I'm laughing sometimes uh, throughout my day when I check through the news feed. There are tons of memes now. Um, I mean, we all know uh, the Russian warship "Go F Yourself" meme, where <laughs> it's it's even in the on the news background. It's um, people making posters, billboards all over the cities in Ukraine. Uh, the governor of Nikolaev um, region, and that's where I actually lived uh, and worked for Peace Corps. He just received a pair of socks with the same um, statement. And um, speaking of the governor of Nikolaev Oblast, he um, his name is Vitaly Kim. He is um, he was appointed by President Zelensky, and he just conveys this calm yet humorous demeanor, even while reporting on some losses and some tough situations in Nikolaev region. And um, people really actually like drawn to him, and they even say that he could be a contender for presidency. He's a Korean-Ukrainian. Uh, he speaks Ukrainian, Russian, English, a little bit of Korean. So he's actually kind of uh, sort of an image of new Ukraine, new generation, diverse Ukraine that is uh, out there fighting. Um, so there's tons of humor, tons of good spirit um, out of the horrible situation. Again, I mentioned memes. Uh, there are tons of songs that are used in different sort of uh, mixes or uh, for sort of kind of as a rally cry. Uh, one of them is, um, good evening, we're from Ukraine. Dobry vechor, my z Ukraini. Um, you probably have heard it. I think I sent it to you too, so we could play it as a background. It's pretty, you know, it's pretty feisty. So, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, these are the good news that I'm, you know, clinging to in hope of, um, uh, you know, speedy resolution, which um, we're going to discuss whether or not it's going to happen. Um, hello, I'm Tyler. Uh, again, back from the, the first episode, uh, I did Peace Corps in North Macedonia, which is a little bit more relevant to this discussion because I read yesterday that... Um, the Russian ambassador in Bosnia um, is uh, okay. Backtrack. Sorry, uh, the Balkans have been moving even closer to NATO than Ukraine has. Macedonia, North Macedonia, has actually joined NATO. Actually, when I was there, and Bosnia, which probably won't actually join NATO, is moving in that direction. Um, and the Russian ambassador in Bosnia basically made similar threats to what the Russians were doing in Ukraine before the war to Bosnia now, which is kind of really 
disturbing because um, Russia doesn't have really any, besides Serbia, Russia doesn't really have any ethnic connections to the Balkans, but they have a lot of uh, um, monetary and political connections and uh, just kind of like sub-level connections. And I'm supposed to be moving to Bosnia in two months, and um, I'm kind of worried a little bit about that. But that that is aside, I've also read some really interesting um, uh, articles by um, Chinese government officials. Um, there's one specific one um, on the US-China Perception Monitor, which is a think tank um, and this one was not written by them. It was written by uh, a man named Hu Wei, um, who is a an actual employee of the government, and they just are publishing it for him so that it can get the word out. And it's basically him analyzing what China is looking at um, uh, geopolitically when it comes to that. And it's really interesting. Um, and we'll get into that later. Um, and then to go to get to your uh, little bit about good new kind of humorous pieces. Um, have you heard about St. Javelin? Um, oh, yes. That's, that's oh, yeah. kind of funny. Like a Madonna um, yeah, someone, a javelin. Yeah, yes. someone, someone designed this set of stickers that basically is an Orthodox uh, uh, Christian um, Madonna um, with a halo that's got the Ukraine uh, trident and she's like cradling a javelin instead of the, uh, instead of the baby. Um, and it's, they're selling stickers as a fundraiser and it, it's kind of funny. There's so many fundraisers right oh, now, yeah. which is also part of the good news. Yeah. Yes, the, the mm-hmm. support and mm-hmm. the, just the um, and it's it's one thing I want to touch on today, which is really interesting, and I think it may actually it's a good thing, but it also may actually be a bad thing. Is it's the shift away from cold blooded IR realism into um, moral arguments. And this was one of the good things that Zelensky has been really effective at, is he basically threw the West's morals at it and was like, what are you going to do? Who are you actually? But that negates the ability for the West to, unfortunately, just carve up Ukraine and give Putin a an out. It, it, it basically... It, I, I know, and I'm not arguing for either way, but I'm saying that was one possible way to stop the, the violence and actually the oh, harm that is, is being... Mm-hmm. It still is, but it makes it a lot harder to do without all these people who have now stood up losing face. Well, this is one of the so-called variants of what could happen. Mm-hmm. If China sides with Russia, even indirectly, by supplying mm-hmm. um, supply and supplies, food, and mm-hmm. maybe weaponry even. Or just money. Oh, yeah, money, cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are in a World War III. Like, you know, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we technically are already because the West is helping mm-hmm. Ukraine. Yeah. Um, sort of kind of funding, in a way, a proxy war mm-hmm. in the eyes of Russia, because mm-hmm. they basically their, their objective or the, their prerogative is we're going to fight the evil West, quote unquote, mm-hmm. in Ukraine, because Ukraine was corrupted by evil West. And mm-hmm. I was mentioning the last time uh, Timothy Snyder uh, and his uh, stance on Putin's views um, as, you know, skewed that they could be of assuming or thinking that the West is corrupt, it's evil, and Russia is this pure state of Slavic wholesomeness Mm -hmm. uh, that needs to be, quote-unquote, protected. Because, 
uh, that sort of reflects Putin's bitterness towards the West because they tried to join NATO and 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 they were like, no, nope, you're, you're mm-hmm. not. And uh, while Georgia was became part of NATO, uh, the Balkans, some Bal- well, Balkan it's states. The Exactly, it's Roskimir. Uh, and so his bitterness basically seeps through this right now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, China is a big player, and it's. Um, someone states that China doesn't have um, allies, it has uh, connections. Or like, it doesn't have friends, it has connections. Well, so so in, in the policy paper, I keep referring back to, let me actually find the, the, the phrase. It was something. Um, China doesn't uh, have friends. It's. Uh, uh, no eternal allies nor perpetual enemies, but our interests are eternal and perpetual. There you go. Is big, interests. Yeah, and so it's like we we can kind of shift on who we are with, but China first. Um, and I think that kind of makes sense because China's goal is to become the sole superpower mm-hmm. in the world. And I'm wondering how maybe they maybe how they kind of strategically using this war to maybe test okay how what's like the the power of like the west by the west i mean whether it's like the u.s european countries like how far they can go how can maybe and i'm wondering like how is china maybe using this one as a like i don't want to say scapegoat but like as a test mm-hmm. i mean like okay let me use it how can i because technically it's in my advantage to see how ethical maybe the west are what are like the nuclear which weapon they have what they have how like powerful their armies are and can if like if and when we decide to to show up against them how that turn out for us how that will turn out for us well so that i mean that was the whole at the beginning of the conflict that was one of the things the u.s continually signaled to china saying we are still active in here don't do anything with taiwan like it, it was be, it was very much almost every dare. single every single day there was something in the news saying the U.S. has sent a task force the U.S. Uh, politicians are going to talk about this the U- U.S. and China are in dialogues um, like that kind of thing um, so it, it really is a, a, a true part of it and then going back to your your point about um, like the, the the Russian purity and the and the culture. Like the day after we met, the the Russian patriarch came out and basically said the the war in Ukraine was because of gay pride. Um, there you go. And it, it it goes if it, it 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 wasn't he used gay pride the pride parade as a a, a a metaphor for Western influence, but it's basically the and this is a thing in in the Balkans as well, um, non Russian thing, but it's still the same trend of seeing um, countries basically put on shows signaling to the west that we are ready to join your club um and one of the and 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 the patriarch was saying basically one of those things is like lgbtq rights and minority rights and you're signaling to the west that oh i'm liberal enough to join your club Mm -hmm. but but uh, he was also just being super religious and super Ugh, about it, but yes. Um. Now that we are looking at China and how uh, they're playing, wouldn't you argue that this is just China doing business? Oh yeah, totally. and, of course. Oh, for them, oh, well, definitely. That's usual China strategy. Yeah, yeah. That, is, that is China. China. <laughs> We're not surprised. So, like, I mean, like, unlike uh, Russia, the West, any other real, really, in my, 
except maybe a few small ones. China is the only real large country that has continuously been a political entity for like almost three or four thousand years. Um, and it's it, it the, the the longevity of uh, of of just planning in the the for the people of China is just a completely different way of doing things than the West. It just goes for so much the, the just the 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 planning is just so much more embedded in what they do. So go ahead. And uh, they basically are sitting on the sidelines, basically mm-hmm. watching as West and Russia mm-hmm. destroy each other. Oh, totally. Yeah. And uh, while having you know a big, big um, control and influence in Africa, mm-hmm. where, for example, in, in the Republic of Congo, there is a huge, huge. Oh, the Belt and Roads. Come again. The Belt and Road Initiative throughout Africa. Uh, the the roads, the mm-hmm. you know the, the the nickel or the, the cobalt mines, for yeah. mm-hmm. for uh, electric cars. That's mm-hmm. basically the future. Mm-hmm. While the West is saying, and the United States are putting sanctions on Russia and saying, hey, we refuse to buy Russian mm-hmm. oil. Well, it's a 10% of our import. So, yeah, sure, it's kind of <laughs> impactful, but not really. Uh, well, China will be like, oh, we'll get all the ingredients for electric cars. Here we go. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they can just sit and watch the show, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And, and But yesterday there was the call uh, between the, the US president and I don't really know how that went. I I, I I saw that it happened, but it didn't really go into it. They were pretty secretive about it. Jen yeah. Psaki was mm-hmm. like, they, they went into some details, but we can go into the details of what they were talking about. They, She's a good press secretary. <laughs> Biden, however, he did, you know, stress that mm-hmm. if China helps Russia, course, God, yes. God forbid, mm-hmm. you know, so... In no uncertain terms, I think he he explained the, the consequences. So. And China realizes that, of course. Oh, true. Um, China definitely understands the precipitous nature of this whole thing, and they don't. They also don't want to be slapped with the sanctions. The only the only the only thing is that they're so much more of the economy, global economy, than, than In the end, sanctions may not work for yeah. any country at this point. It didn't work in Iran. It didn't work mm-hmm. in North Korea because cryptocurrency is on the mm-hmm. rise yeah. also. Mm-hmm. But this is also helpful for Ukraine because they have been getting funding because of cryptocurrency. However, Russia, uh, North Korea, Iran, many countries who have been through sanctions have mm-hmm. been using cryptocurrency. And with crypto, you can't trace anything, unlike mm-hmm. banks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With banks, you can. And uh, I just want, I guess, your point of view also how cryptocurrency might play in this new area. Like, it, cryptocurrency isn't new. It was used in other countries as well, but it's more seen now in Ukraine and Russia and China as well. Um, so how will this play out in the new, I guess, age of war? So I don't know the exact specifics, but it's it definitely... Um, it ena- and it enables a a flow of, of, of resources that can't be impacted by foreign governments. Um, and it's really interesting because um, right now there is being proposed a by some U.S. politicians a digital central currency. So basically a digital version of the dollar, which would be regulated. Um, but that wouldn't really impact what's happening now because that's going to take forever to, to put into place. But Elizabeth is on. Um, can you hear us now? Hello, everyone. 
Hello. She can hear you and <laughs> finally you in real time, so it's good. <laughs> All right, please. Um, we we're hearing you, and go ahead. We're sorry for the connection earlier. Um, now we're here for you. So I think I did just just the one comment I have about um, China's relation to the whole thing is that you know, as we all know, China is you know in a sort of and I think on on one of the articles I read was called like a bear hug. I think it was the Economist and. Um, so they they're friends with Russia, and I think they have they, they're joined in this mutual sort of competition to at least dethrone America from its you know hegemonic seat in uh, in the world. And um, I think China is kind of just slowly raising a middle finger <laughs> to mm-hmm. the United States. Um, I don't think that they care very much about um, whether or not uh, no, I, I don't think they they would lament uh, the United States continuing uh, fall um, if it, you know, ends up suffering severely, um, economically especially, with its, uh, through its interference or intervention in the Russian hostility against Ukraine. So... As we, uh, okay, brought China into the discussion, but the point there was simply to see how the world is reacting to the conflict and how different actors are playing their cards, which in the end, um, it's one's own favoring, right? Even the European Union, they're, they're helping the, the conflict because if the conflict escalates, it affects the whole United States, the same. And we remember back then in the past that the United States had to invest in the reconstruction of part of Europe um, and it went well. So now all that investment, it's probably uh, compromised, right? Um, referring to the Russian, uh, the Marshall Plan back then. But cryptocurrency, uh, it's, it seems that it's coming as an alternative. Um, Russia has been uh, sanctioned. Uh, the, America, the Russian banks are uh, out of the system with the SWIFT um, and all. But how do you see this playing? Because Professor Pratishta said that maybe uh, the Russians have been preparing for this and they have even built their uh, backstage systems. Uh, like, okay, but what do you think um, the alternative there is? Because they don't seem to care that much. I, mean, I don't think they did. I don't think they built the system because... As they a Russian, the economy be- ever cared about being entirely above board? Oh, okay. Uh, that's, that's Alex. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, please. Oh, I, I go, yeah, great. <laughs> Sorry, just uh, I didn't realize my mic was hot there. I was thinking out loud. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Even better. Please yeah, share your yeah, thoughts. Yeah, please, please join us. <laughs> well, I mean, we know hypothetically that Russia has always been willing to participate in the international capital market, which they're now being pushed off from. And that's all just an effort to destabilize the internal Russian war effort. Mm-hmm. But now that they're connected with China and they're going to be foisting Bitcoin or whichever cryptocurrencies uh, coming from however many different online actors, those are just siphons, right? I mean, it's a method of economic motion capture, sure. But is it going towards something that is going to benefit the internal stability of the Russian economy and the Russian populace? 
in the meantime, while they're suffering all the sanctions? Probably not. No. And, the, and the fact that they're... They tried to use the the frozen. So I don't I don't know what you, how much you guys know about the, the the debt payments and the coming default of Russia. Um, Russia announced it made the payments on the debt. It used the frozen currency that the U.S. has frozen in in the external reserves of, of the national bank, which means they didn't make the payments. Which means they don't have the money for it. Which means cryptocurrency isn't really bridging that gap. Um, yeah, zero liquidity. Yeah, because the whole point of cryptocurrency is it's perfectly, perfectly liquid and perfectly untraceable, basically, right? I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know. I'm not an expert in it, but that's what I get from it. So, and if they're not being able to use it for that, then yeah. But you said you were going to brief us about the, the cryptocurrency. Well, I'm not an expert either. Of course. What I found out was. It's cryptocurrency is very volatile, so you can pay for an amount, but it might come out differently mm-hmm. during a wartime, especially. So it's extremely volatile. But in my opinion, Russia was like ready for something after two thousand fourteen, especially when it was hit by sanctions again. So there are other means of ways that we don't know what's going on, and um, I do think there is one positive aspect of cryptocurrency. It's because Ukraine has been using it also for fundraising because it's been very difficult to get in money, get in aid. However, cryptocurrency is also very difficult to liquidate. You have to get out of the country sometimes. The assets may be frozen. So, um, well, Anastasia, you might know more about how Ukraine has been using it. So, I think there was $30 million last time we spoke yeah. in cryptocurrency. Uh, and, I mean, the aid goes beyond crypto, of course. Mm-hmm. There are supplies. There are actually people who fly into Poland border, uh, Hungary border, to help with humanitarian aid, to help with the refugee set- resettlement. Um, as I mentioned, <clears throat> there are tons of fundraisers that uh, returned Peace Corps volunteers are organizing from T-shirts to postcards to... Um, Benefit benefit concerts. Um, there's Ukrainian troop mm-hmm. from DC, and they're like a dance group, and they're just gonna you know all the proceeds go to Ukraine relief. So again, we we talked about this before. The the support for Ukraine is overwhelming, but I like to kind of pivot uh, to back to Russia and the Russians who are also leaving Russia. There is now a quarter of a million young, educated, middle class well, soon not to be, Russians who left their country uh, for one reason or another, well, main reason being the war, um, the financial uncertainty, uh, also the fear of being persecuted. Uh, It seems like those laws, uh, fake news laws that we talked about before, they're getting more and more... um, cruel and, and uh, people don't even know their rights anymore. There is a politologist from Russia, Yekaterina Schulman, whose podcasts I've been also listening to religiously, who is very level-headed, um, talking about how to survive in current uncertain times, etc., what to do, what not to do, um, just like as a overall advisor. And she said, do not give your phones to the police. You still have a right to refuse 
to you know not to give out your possessions. There is no law right now mm-hmm. in Russia that that basically states you have to give, a, give away your phone, so the police will go through your correspondence. I mean, I've seen that happening. It, mm-hmm. But it's it. But people are so scared, um, and they lived in this again this this suppressive um, sort of bubble of okay, if the authority asks you or demands you to do something, you do it. And it goes back into the Soviet times and repressions during the Stalinist regime. Um, people lived in fear. There, it's it's almost like generational, although I do have hope in the younger generation and the new generation, people in their 20s, some of them who already left and who can kind of can breathe easier and who could actually help to spread the word of dissent and to sort of help crack this propaganda machine, which already has been happening. I don't know if you've seen, but there was a woman on the ch- mm-hmm. channel, yeah. state channel, yeah. with a poster mm-hmm. stating that no war, mm-hmm. they're lying to you, don't believe the propaganda. And she was visible for about five seconds, but it was during the prime time. She was arrested. She recorded the video before uh, her um, brave act and a lot of uh, now underground podcasters and independent media said way to go we should not criticize you we should not think that I mean some people already think oh yeah she was a plant because see this is how mistrusting people are towards what they see they they, they trust nothing anymore just like my relatives mm-hmm. in Moscow um, but the this is the also like the good news of you know encouraging dissent and in her video she also said don't be afraid. They cannot arrest all of us because if 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 the masses of people basically go out, yes, it it may be scary, but the more people go out, the better. Or the again, the more um, again, the bigger the the span of of the descent will be. So, mm-hmm. um, we'll um, we'll I will invite you to listen to Professor Patrick as well, um, so that we can emerge or. Build a link on the food crisis that will be coming up. Um, I think we discussed that briefly on a on a separate debate. My name is Pratista Joshi Rajkarnikar. I am a lecturer here at uh, Brandeis University. I teach a course on economic development, and I did my PhD on on migration and gender issues from University of Massachusetts in Amherst in 2017. And since then, I've been working on broadly reforming the way that we teach economics. I've been working on developing various um, educational materials that focus on various social and environmental issues in economics and kind of try to broaden uh, the, the perspectives from focusing on just market activities. I'm, I'm currently uh, also an associate director of the Economics in Context Initiative at Boston University, where I do most of this work on developing educational materials. Two, two big things that we're worried about. One is the food prices, given that um, a lot of the exports, um, especially I think the, the two, two key exports, corn and wheat, uh, that come from uh, Russia and, and Ukraine more, uh, more importantly, um, that is going to affect food, pri- food prices uh, more globally. That's one big concern, uh, given that um, you know we know that food insecurity has been rising in recent years, uh, partly due to cl- climate change, partly due to conflicts in other parts of the world. Uh, and now with this crisis, it, it looks like there's going to be a huge surge in, in food prices, right? And that's going to be affecting the, the poorest part of the world uh, much more than the wealthier parts. 
Um, and then the other big part of it is the energy energy crisis and the, and, and our reliance um, on. Um, on oil and gas, um, largely, uh, I think the, globally we're still 80% of the energy comes from oil, um, and there is a lot of um, reliance on oil from from Russia. I think it's um, the third or the fourth largest um, oil producer, um, and, and I think we in the United States have over time become less, less reliant on it. I think it's only about 4% or 3% um, of oil imports from Russia. Um, but for the European countries, I think um, over 40% of um, uh, oil imports for European countries is from Russia. So that there's going to be a huge surge in energy prices there, um, even, even if we don't really already have any kind of um, trade bans uh, for for oil for the European countries yet, right? And we are still already seeing uh, prices rise. A part of that is just due to speculation, but it's also going to have longer term um, impacts on the energy markets, right? And there could be some silver lining there, right? It might encourage some of the countries to shift away from their dependence on oil and kind of think about moving towards more renewable energy, trying to become more energy independent. Uh, but in the short term, it means that people are going to have to deal with either rising prices, um, short supply shortages, um, and that might be another uh, big uh, crisis that's, that's, that's going to affect um, everyday people, right? Um, so I think um, for Russia, it's been kind of trying to isolate them from the rest of the world, right? A lot of sanctions, um, which I, I don't think is deterring Putin at all at, until this point. Um, it, it seems as though he's actually been preparing for this quite a bit since 2014. Um, for example, um, you know, they've uh, removed um, a number of Russian banks from SWIFT, but it turns out Russia has their own uh, mini version of, of, of a similar uh, banking messaging system, uh, because of which the whole system hasn't really come down collapsing, right? They, they kind of built some of that um, independence, uh, some of that infrastructure to maybe prepare for something like this, right? It seems... Um, at least, um, at least that that they, that they've actually put in some thought on what they might do if they are cut off from the from the rest of the world. Um, obviously, the value of their currency has, I think, lost about fifty percent um, of its value in the in the in the global market. So that's going to have an impact on 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 everyday people, right? And then. Um, Lack of access to, um, to to financial services is going to affect um, affect the everyday people, right? It's it's not going to affect Putin or maybe the more wealthier parts of the population, but it's going to affect uh, most everyday uh, everyday um, Russian people, right? So, um, and then the inflation there, right? I think it's about nine percent or ten percent um, right now. So it's 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 the prices are rising really rapidly. Um, so all of that is going to have um, that is going to have an economic impact. I'm not sure how much it is going to affect Putin's action. You know, uh, the the weakening economy. I don't know how much that is going to. Um, it, 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 it's going to be a more longer term impact in terms of the economic impacts. But um, the the political actions that he's taking right now, the military actions, is is more short term. So I don't know how much he's going to make his current decisions based on what might happen economically as the sanctions, um, as, as there are more and more sanctions um, in, in Russia. Um, for Ukraine, um, I would say, you know, uh, this is um, going to 
hurt a lot of their infrastructure, right? Not just the roads and bridges, but also the social infrastructure, the cultural infrastructure of the country that that is um, very much essential to the overall functioning, right? It, t- it takes a lot um, in, in terms of rebuilding uh, from a war, right? So I think one challenge coming is the whole migration thing, right? Um, migration due to conflict, and and I think that also kind of applies to other parts of the other parts of the world where there has been conflict and a lot of mass migration because of conflict, right? Um, it is going to affect uh, the, the the neighboring economies um, as much as it's going to affect affect. Um, the Ukrainian economy itself, right? Um, the loss of huge um, active labor force for Ukraine could be a, a huge challenge when they when they kind of start thinking about rebuilding and recovering from that from that war, right? Um, and the, in the uh, in the receiving end, um, you know, integrating these migrants into um, into the into the economies of where they get to, um, that's going to be another um, big challenge, right? So I, I think. Um, one 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 big thing to be thinking about is is just the economic impact of migration, but also um, there is the whole humanitarian um, aspect associated with with having to you know uh, live everything that you've built all your life and having to go and find a new place and start life all over again. So there is um, there is that aspect I think that's going to be very difficult for for a lot of migrants. She builds a point there that we can then connect to our reflections. First, the food crisis that she mentioned, and then the, the energy dependency that is going. Uh, we learned that nearly everything else is, is priced around oil. Um, probably when you go buy sugar, you should ask how much crude oil is that day, and then you know um, how expensive it will be. But um, North Africa, is going to get into a huge humanitarian crisis soon. Um, I remember our colleague from Egypt um, has already said that, well, it's happening right now. Prices are pumping up almost more than 40% of nearly everything. Yeah, if I can um, say something about this. I was reading on the, um, the impact of the Ukrainian uh, inability to serve its... Uh, you know, to, to meet its export uh, requirements because of the crisis, especially since a lot of the, um, the, the farmers in Ukraine have either left, and so their, their land is going to be deserted, and uh, so that's one thing. And then also, like, the shipping of um, prepared exports are no longer going to be able to go out as fast, and that's going to impact, as you said, like, Africa and also basically all of the um, receiver, recipients of um, Ukrainian and also Russian ex, uh, imports. So I think um, is, um, in foreign policy news, like the foreignpolicynews.org, um, they use this um, hierarchy of needs just uh, to um, show how it impacts um, economic and human development. I think so... The, the issues she raised, like you first have um, an immediate food and energy crisis in in areas of the world that are already depleted, um, and so if you look at the impact of like human development and economic development in these areas, which are already in a state of crisis because they are not, um, they are not, um, you know, they don't have they don't have stores, they don't have a, you know, 
like quick access to to like a second um, provider, for example, um, then you see that their their basic need, a physiological need, um, which is more important than physical safety, um, is hit first, and that can cause a catastrophic imbalance on um, global security because you have a rise in um, civil conflicts in order to sort of like um, make up for the lack of resources. So people are going to be like immediately going after each other um, and it's going to start like a huge um, rise in like uh, interethnic conflict, when you, especially in countries which already have histories of conflict um, between different ethnic groups. And so that's just going to like it's going to show like a degradation or sort of like a depletion of this um, hierarchy. People are no longer going to care about, you know, democrat democracy or um, protecting people with disabilities and LGBTQ. And then in countries that have populism, you're going to see a higher rise in populism um, and um, just a complete desertion of Western values in countries that are already struggling to incorporate them. Um, for example, like democracy and human rights. Um, and so it's just going to go, it's just, you're going to see a, like a drastic decline in this, um, in, in the improvements on this scale in a lot of um, developing countries. Yeah, um, Egypt imports, I think it's roughly $1.4 billion in grain every year from Russia and Ukraine. Um, and it's not just um, North Africa, it's the Middle East as well. Um, uh, it was Lebanon. Uh, an official said they had a month's worth after since the the bomb blast happened in their harbor. They had at most one month's worth of grain supply in the entire country as a reserve, and that's nothing. Um, so I think uh, while lack of, I think you, I think you're right. There will be an increase. Um, I, I don't think uh, it will it, it will be, it will directly cause conflict but i think there will be a lot of a lot of unrest in um a lot of the, the recipient countries of ukrainian and russian uh foodstuffs and it will necessitate a a change in thinking about where to source these goods whether it's a shifting of internal production so instead of producing a bunch of african countries producing cash crops for export maybe they should start shifting to more domestic production of foodstuffs um, that will be consumed locally. Um, I know some countries just can't because some countries are desert and don't have the facilities to produce their own grain, but that doesn't mean you have to get it from Ukraine. Um, you can get it from other countries. Um, that also doesn't mean the U.S. is the one they should get it from because that also provides other avenues of insidious or not necessarily beneficial uh, external influence. Um, but I think this might, like people are discussing how this might be a, a, a wake-up call for renewable energy sources. This could definitely be a wake-up call for a lot of countries on um, food independence and food self-sufficiency, which is, I think, a, a potential benefit. Um, trying to pull out benefits from this. <laughs> but perhaps before that food independence level, there will be a lot of struggle. There. Oh, um, definitely. There'll be it, it, growing pains. There will be significant hunger, significant food shortages. 
Um, and I just read a piece that um, Ukraine will probably not be able to meet its export needs because um, it, it not only has it, has it basically said it won't be exporting anything, but also they won't just have the, the, the foodstuffs to export because um, as Russia moves farther west, there will be more and more disruption to, uh, to the actual planting of the grain, which should be happening next now. month now and next yeah. month basically is mm-hmm. is the time um so and just to add the the, the oblast the region where i worked is a mini breadbasket mm-hmm. of ukraine nikolaevsk oblast mm-hmm. and the governor in the, one of his daily updates was saying gotta gotta be gotta be preparing for planting season mm-hmm. and, and while there are still tanks kind of burning in the fields <laughs> so they're just probably going to go around um, yeah. and yes there are uh, lots of men um, had to go to be in the territorial defense mm-hmm. or the army because um, the men in Ukraine cannot leave yeah. ages between 18 and 60 um, yeah so that could be basically big big bad crisis no in the future <laughs> not only will the fields be disrupted themselves but there'll be no one to plant in the fields. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and to your point, I know you're talking about maybe there might be risk of like ongoing crisis coming mm-hmm. up, and which I agree. And when you mentioned that one thing, it made me think of I'm like, okay, so if you're a politicians, whichever country, and then you know that might be coming. So I'm wondering whether we might also see a rise of maybe protectionism measure from like mm-hmm. those countries who are like. Well, like, okay, so I can foresee that coming. Maybe how can I make sure people in my country don't export food? Let's let's like holding, let's like save the food we have now, so we can prevent that to make sure like it doesn't come worse. So, and unfortunately, in the short term, I think that will make things worse. So, the so in the long term, that would not be necessarily a bad thing if countries start doing policies mm-hmm. like that. However, um. The only real way, if Ukraine and Russia are not exporting sufficient quantities or really any quantity, there has to be, at least this harvest season, there has to be some way of making up that gap because countries can't pivot that fast. Mm -hmm. And the only other three nations really are the U.S., India and China. Um, China and um, and in the last, in the, I, I was I was waiting for this because in the last, I, I'm not sure um, how many years. I think it was the last decade. Um, China has been so India and, and the U.S. have significant stockpiles. The U.S. is really good at managing it. India is not. They lose a massive quantity of it every year to wastage. Um, however, China doesn't really have that big of a national stockpile of grain. Um, And in the past X number of years, not that long, they've been building it up, which is one of the reasons why there has been a steady increase in grain prices up to the start of the Ukraine war, is because they have been not exporting things. Excellent. However, the only way to make up that gap of Russia and Ukraine is for every country to freely export their grain um, as much as possible um, unless there's a truly windfall harvest. And, and that's my question. Like, do you see that happening? No. Because you mentioned, you mentioned China. <laughs> no, that's not going to happen. Exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's what I mean when I say protectionism. Because mm-hmm. they might be like, okay, why should I export my mm-hmm. business and put my 
Citizen at Risk auf Phone Girl. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, that's not gonna happen. <laughs> um, I mean, bad news anyway. So, so the, the big three, uh, um, India, China, and the U.S., aren't in that necessarily. If we export our our country, our citizens will go hungry. They're not in that quite level, mm-hmm. that strata. They're at a higher level of we produce a very large surplus, but it's geopolitical and strategic interests. I mean, what's the argument against the U.S. grain aids for the last 50 years is it's a political tool. Um, but India doesn't use it as much because, uh, like that because it is such a large country and they use most of it domestically. But China is wake, waking up to that where, I mean, everyone has been watching what U.S. aid and all the U.S. grain has been doing for the last 50 years in Africa. Um, and China knows what they can do with their economic might. They're not stupid by yeah. any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. So, One well, last question. I know we don't have a lot of no, no, time yeah, left, yeah. but um, so we're talking about like international politics and economics, but I'm also, um, I want to ask about the humanitarian aspect of mm-hmm. Ukraine, what's going on, and um, how this will impact the future of Ukraine and if negotiations are still mm-hmm. going on. And recently, uh, there's three million refugees or more. We don't know the quiet statistics. And there's millions of displaced individuals. So I just want to talk about the humanitarian aspect. I have numbers for you. A quarter of the entire Ukraine population is either internally mm-hmm. or externally displaced by now. Mm-hmm. So uh, they say yeah, three and a half million refugees mm-hmm. in Poland and Hungary, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, some coming to <clears throat> other Western European countries and, and some even to U.S. Um, yeah, a few thousand, not too many. No, no, no. It's it, it obviously we we still don't do mm-hmm. any of the anything that mm-hmm. would be, in, encourage uh, Ukrainians to come here, which I'm I would beef with. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, fourth of population out of forty four million already displaced. Uh, what can I say as a as a human being? I mean, of course it's horrible. Um, uh, some Ukrainians who are um, <clears throat> in um, safe spots in Poland and Hungary. They say that they actually want to come back to Ukraine, but when will that happen? It's already been trillions of dollars of damage of, of, of the apartment buildings and roads, etc. Mm-hmm. Although, ironically, the, the railroads are still operating, yeah, which is amazing. Really well, too. Yes, kind of surprising. God forbid the Russians start bombing that. I mean, they already start bombing, um, go back to uh, food security, they start bombing markets and storage facilities mm-hmm. with food. Yeah. So I, I have a feeling, I mean, they're doing it deliberately okay. to create like a Holodomor 2.0, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the famine from the 30s, mm-hmm. which is completely monstrous and atrocious. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, of course, I have like personal interest in um, <clears throat> making sure uh, my Ukrainian friends actually are in out of the harm's way. But yes, yeah, psychologically, it's an awful uh, burden, um, especially with families being separated, with men staying and, and women and children and, and the elderly have to, to leave. There is the uncertainty. There is this psychological burden of like, what will I do? Um, where will I find food? I mean, how long will I be staying? Um, and I actually asked Leo before this podcast to talk mm-hmm. about the psychological sort of consequences of, of the entire crisis and the war, um, including in Russia, where 
common Russians are also going to suffer. And as Ekaterina Schumann mentioned in one of her podcasts, the barbarization of the society will be mm. very fast. As soon as people start fighting for sugar, and they already are mm -hmm. fighting for sugar, it's it already has started. And I remember in the 90s living through the mm -hmm. the reforms of, of newly formed uh, post-Soviet republics. It was bad, man. It was not pretty in any shape or form the crime rose and internal crime in ukraine is also rising because people are desperate because people want to be you know feeling some sort of a safety there is murdering going on like like looting mm -hmm. not only by russian soldiers but internally again because no one's really watching again the governor of mikhailov is like i'm gonna punish those because people are reporting that so it, i mean this is the price of war of, of, of things that are lawless that uh, people are, are basically assuming well if if, if this uh, if there is no order anymore then I can do whatever I want so obviously it's just a big big mess so I actually have two points one which is really interesting is um, Putin came to power on kind of a social contract of I'll make sure your wages are paid Because there were there were miners who hadn't been paid but right before he came. There were Russian miners who hadn't been paid for six months of work. Teachers, and, and it was terror. Yeah, and, and so he came on to the he came into power on the on the on the social contract of I will make the economy good. You will get paid. You will have a better standard of living. You stay out of politics. Yeah, that's basically I, I, what's I, been I, I basically I control the press. I control politics. You will have a good life. Don't bother me. Which, um, which could probably be and, a good deal for some people. Well, well, so, well it worked, obviously. Mm. And um, at least in the first decade after he came to power, the Russian standard of living was the best it had been almost ever, basically. So many people were lifted out of um, terrible circumstances. Um, but and he also going back exactly. Into and he was also just lucky of oil prices. He, he lucked out incredibly incredibly with that but the point is that is now for the first time really being tested that social contract he has with the russian people but that's it'll be interesting to see where that goes um the other point i wanted to make is um we've t i've talked a lot about with friends and there was a discussion the other day with the brandeis african um forum um about the impact of 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 the war not only on africa itself but on foreigners in ukraine and um Stuff like that, but I, there, there, I read a very interesting thing which I didn't know about Denmark, which kind of upset me. Which mm. is, uh, they have a they have a law where basically the police can confiscate anything that a refugee has on their person when the refugee comes to the country, cash, jewelry, whatever. Oh, they lifted that for the Ukrainian refugees, but they still yeah. haven't lifted that for Syrian or any other oh, refugees. Boy. Which yeah. is very like they're they're welcoming in Ukrainians and they're helping and they're 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 double basically standards it's the double standards and and we saw this first with in, in Ukraine with the all the African and Indian mm -hmm. students trying to flee the country but then they couldn't even if they could as soon as they got into Poland um, there was unofficial racism and all that like, it wasn't the government of Poland saying oh we're going to be beating these people up and being mean to them but it's roving bands of, of, of citizens and it's mm -hmm. it's really disturbing and we definitely have to keep an eye on that the good news though that the uh, group of Indian and African students who were trapped in the mm -hmm. one they got, they they were, got yeah. out um, but yes it's, but like literally there was an ambassador from what I, I think it was Ghana or some somewhere um, some West African country basically had his car convoy 
drive people to the border because yeah. otherwise oh, they weren't going to make it. That's awesome. I'm going from, from his own country. No, obviously. I know. But, but like literally, like if that, if that wasn't going to happen, then there wasn't going to they weren't going to get out. Um, yeah. yeah. So. But then the United Nations. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead, please. I was gonna, just to um, answer part of the question. Um, oh, I can't remember her name. The one who just um, asked about the humanitarian impact of the crisis. Um, I, I wanted to draw attention to sort of like the human, the human side of um, <clears throat> this economic, you know, the impact of this economic uh, imbalance caused by migration. Um, I guess this is just my focus because of what I do every day, Monday through Friday. But um, I, I, I listened to it, an old story on, um, I think it was at NPR, on what happened when there was the brain drain from Russia and like after the fall of the Soviet. I should say, sorry, brain drain from the Soviet Union after the fall of the Union, um, and it, it, it uh, hit the Eastern European population the hardest. Uh, there was a, a huge spike in sex trafficking and uh, uh, abuse of children in the labor, labor trafficking, child trafficking, um, and so I, I, even though Europe has welcomed white Ukrainians um, with open arms, just the fact that you have a lot of broken families, I mean, Anastasia pointed this out, like you have the men uh, staying in Ukraine to support the war effort, um, that, that splits the family apart. It's very emotionally and psychologically um, difficult to bear. And so you'll have a huge spike in um, family poverty so women will abandon their children and seek immediate relief, uh, monetary relief to, to survive. Um, and you'll have a lot of unaccompanied children. Um, and so the United Nations post, like, um, just posted an article on March 7th about this. And so the, basically the demographic that is going to be at greatest risk is uh, the children who are not able to work. Um, let's keep in mind that the, the average age of families in Eastern Europe and Ukraine is about 20 to 23. Uh, women get married, men get married like before 25, and they have at least one child. Um, so that's a, a significant um, part of the population that is going to be unemployed, um, not just because there's not really much space for them in the in the in the market because um, they're they're all there at once, but because they have a family to take care of um, without the second, um, you know, without their partner to make to make uh, the income requirement. So that's I think that's the biggest um, part of the humanitarian crisis that we will be struggling with for a very long time. And it doesn't it's not necessarily because the you know they're not welcome. You know, because they are refugees, it's not that. It's just simply because economies are not flexible enough naturally to be able to handle a mass wave of unemployed people at once. Um, so that's the pressure, and it's just there's just no way um, nations can, you know, take care of their own hungry, their native hunger problem um, while meeting the needs, especially this time of year. I mean, it's like, you know, still winter in that part of the world. Um, so that's just a huge, huge issue. 
Mm-hmm. So the only thing I can say as like a kind of a hopeful stance on this is we did see after World War II with the massive Marshall Plan in Western Europe, um, a bunch of these countries were able to put a, a good sizable portion of their population to work um, and pay them with, with money from the U.S. And if, if the only thing with that is the war has to be over. You can't do that if they're still fighting. Um, development during conflict really isn't development. Um, and But if that happens, I, I do see there is willingness, I think, of the West from, from the Western powers to, to go in and support the rebuilding. Um, and have Russia pay the reparations. Whether or not that happens, yes or no, because we, we all know reparations uh, can... Um, if done incorrectly, can lead right back to war. Um, mm. Oh, can I just make yeah, a, yeah, a yeah, quick point? So that that also means that Russia, Russians, uh, soldiers, common citizens, <clears throat> should not be ostracized because that's... A war guilt, we cannot do war Germany guilt. actually mm. yeah. kind of yeah. accepting it mm-hmm. back into, op- yeah. quote-unquote, open arms. Mm-hmm. And, and also, like, having... Um, Uh, prisoners of war working uh, on some mm-hmm. projects, but also not being, you yeah. know, like treated like animals of, yeah. you know, monstrous There killers, etc. There can be no clause. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, so hopefully that will um, kind of kind of rebuild both nations in mm-hmm. a way, and at least yeah. so they would hate each other for like centuries. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll be um, closing our discussion today, um, but just. 57 minutes ago on, on a link to the news uh, just highlights of a few updates came, came up that well uh, death tolls is increasing and as you mentioned that now um, it's been mentioned 1,900 casualties and 726 people that have been killed and then 52 children um, since the war began just a highlight this is from uh, um, uh, Jessica Hartox on, on LinkedIn mm-hmm. Uh, but there was a uh, 800 million dollars that uh, mm-hmm. Biden uh, US president uh, have um, provided as well to in addition to, to I think 200 million so it's 1 billion dollars I think yeah, it was, yeah. I think they, they had announced it was 1.3 or 1.4 billion the, yeah. yeah and then that's all part of it yeah yeah the money is is, is growing which you, you highlighted that it's all military aid though yeah right now. because that's why I wanted to link with the question of humanitarian aid um How would you argue to finish our discussion today the sense of where home is to those who are fleeing? Uh, some of them are saying, I do not intend to come back. Uh, and why? Uh, we, we've learned from other conflicts when we analyzed, um, uh, even from the, just the spillover effects of the conflict itself, the refugees, as much as they're welcomed where they go, where they're going, they're still refugees. And that status itself does not transmit any sort of comfort, um, however that is. Well, so, like, I know, again, going back to the Balkans, because that's what I know. Mm-hmm. Um, Bosnia, which still hasn't recovered its pre-war population um, from 91, um, it was a little over 4 million pe- uh, people population before. Um, and... It was, 
I, I forget exactly the pop, uh, percentage number, but it, it was it was equivalent to the Russian uh, to Ukraine right now. It was like it, it was like ten to twenty percent of the population had fled internationally, and a good chunk still haven't haven't come back. Like here in in northeastern Massachusetts, there's a pretty large Bosnian diaspora community, um, and it's it's part of being a refugee, and eventually, depending on the country you're in. Um, it may or may not become a permanent status. You may or may not be granted citizenship eventually. And a bunch of people did return. And a bunch of people will return to Ukraine. That's, I mean, after World War II, people returned back home. You make your life. Uh, you rebuild what you can. You can. If your house is still standing, your house is still standing. If it's not, you either move or you rebuild. It's what war does. I don't know. I think that there's going to be a lot of identity denial. Like... Um, I have a lot of Armenian friends, for example. I, I served in the Peace Corps in Armenia. Um, and I had, when I was living in Montreal, I had Armenian friends there. And I, I, they would, you know, of course, visit their friends and family in Armenia. Um, but I think it depends on the chances of having a, a dignifying life. Mm. in your native country, I think that's going to determine the the, um, the rate of return um, and also the long-term, uh, you know, appreciation for, uh, for the, the refugees in their host country. I mean, um, uh, the, the, the Ukrainians who will return I mean, some are, some are even going back now, like they're realizing, no, I have to return to my husbands. Like I have to, you know, not husbands, but I have to, they, they, the women are saying they want to go back to support their, their husbands or their brothers. Um, a lot of them left their, you know, their uh, old parents who couldn't make the trip. There are a lot of disabled people who are left uh, without family. And the, the, the refugees are realizing that they can't leave their families behind. Um, but in the long term, I think it has to do with how likely uh, these Ukrainians or, you know, just refugees refugees in general, because there are a lot of uh, other refugees in Ukraine from other countries. So it depends on how much they, you know, their, their chances are, how, how great their chances are to reestablish their lives. And I think that has to, that, that's why Bosnia doesn't have, uh, hasn't recovered from mm-hmm. the, the war as much because there isn't really much promise yes, there but right now. It, uh, so I'm, I, I, I agree with you on the return and all that stuff. I don't agree with you necessarily on the loss of identity because I, at least again with the Balkan community, diaspora communities, I see if anything those people are more Bosnian, more North Macedonian, more Greek, more whatever than their than the people who stayed um, in an attempt to claw back the normalcy and the culture and the whatever. And, and I, to be honest, I see that happening in the Ukrainian diaspora that will be growing. And to add that, maybe we can finish with this bit of a good sort of uplifting thought. Always, always down for ending on a good Ukrainians are more Ukrainian now. <laughs> they're, they're like more yes. unified mm-hmm. against these adversaries and, and the, these awful things that ever before. They're just like, I'm Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. Damn it. I have to stay and do something, <laughs> you know, whether it's defend 
or bake cakes for soldiers or mm-hmm. uh, transport refugees in and out. Um, so I'm I'm just very hopeful. Again, go back to my good news of all the the memes and, and, and <laughs> optimistic sort of uh, uplifting stories that Ukrainians are so freaking united and I'm so proud that they're doing something. And they're not even forced to do it while Russia is sort of kind of forced. Like they had this rallies in support mm-hmm. of, of the special operation, quote unquote, where they say, oh, thousands of students show up. They were voluntold, they were told or paid or whatever. Ukrainians have a genuine sort of uh, fire in themselves so uh, yay <laughs> I, think, I thank you all um, we, we can resume our conversation in two weeks from now again after following the updates perhaps we will be getting into the details of the negotiations mm-hmm. so yes. that we can hopefully cannot, hopefully uh, they continue and hopefully they go well uh, yes mm-hmm. yes and we want to get into the technicalities of it like who's involved what are the deals mm-hmm. um, the caucus the going on um, we really want to understand the, the game there so that uh, we can address the questions about the humanitarian crisis that will be, will, will be coming. And we don't really have uh, an exact idea, but it's going to hit hard um, looking at the effects in Africa. And mm-hmm. yeah, well, see you in two weeks. Keep coming. Thank you. Yes. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.